Malachi chapter 3 verse 7. Even from the days of your fathers ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But he said, wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But, ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse. For ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat or food in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. So this evening we're going to consider robbing God. Strong words, isn't it? Robbing God. It's hard to imagine that we could rob God. We'll look at the rebellion of Israel against God throughout their generations, and we shall look at their blindness to that rebellion. Also in our passage, the Lord gives a very clear example of their rebellion. Lastly, we shall look at blessings for obedience to the Lord and curses for disobedience. Let's have a look again at verse 7 in Malachi chapter 3. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, wherein shall we return? So, they weren't keeping the ordinances of God. What is an ordinance? An ordinance is an authoritative order. And it can be something that is to be done as a requirement of the law of the land. More to the point, an ordinance can be something that is done as a requirement of God's law. We call the Lord's Supper an ordinance, don't we? And we call baptism an ordinance, two Christian ordinances, two authoritative orders. Well, I suppose they are, but also I think we we could, we do well to, when we think of the Lord's Supper, when I'm here at any rate, speaking for myself again as I did this morning, when I'm here partaking at the Lord's table, I don't really think of it as an ordinance. I think of it as a blessing from God, a time of great blessing, yeah? But anyway, this is what an ordinance is. It's an authoritative order, whether it be of the land that you live in or more to the point from God. As can be seen in verse 7, the Jews in Malachi's time had not kept the Lord's ordinances, neither had their forefathers. It's not just the successive generations of Jews who failed to keep God's commands, 
Who else is guilty of that? Who else fails to keep the commands of God, the ordinance of God? Everybody, everyone fails miserably. In fact, throughout history, God has given laws and authoritative orders or ordinances to mankind with a requirement that his laws be kept and the very opposite has happened. For example, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to the first man, Adam, the Lord commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Adam's disobedience to that command of God, that ordinance of God, came as no surprise to the Lord. And that's why the Lord said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God's commandments and his ordinances are given to us in accordance with his perfectly reasonable requirements of us regardless of whether we keep those ordinances or not. That's that's an irrelevance. Are they reasonable? Of course they are. They come from God. God is perfect and holy, and so are his laws perfect and holy. God does not need to lower the bar for us. He gives us these laws, and for our part, we break them. And as we shall see in a while, there are very serious consequences for non-compliance, for violation of God's laws. The Jews in Malachi's time probably held their forefathers in high esteem, and maybe they even venerated them. As such, it it must have been been painful for them to be reminded of their forefathers' Rebellion and failure to keep God's ordinances. It's there in the verse, even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances. Their fathers. Along with a reminder to the Jews of their forefathers' failure to keep God's ordinances, verse 7 also shows the mercy of God, as can be seen in those words, return unto me, and I will return unto you. That's a familiar theme. I didn't look it up. I only thought about it earlier today. But I'm sure we looked at something very similar when we were looking at the book of Zechariah. In fact, in the in chapter 1. Um, and that's how it is with God. Return unto me and I will return unto you. That shows how gracious and how merciful the Lord is. That he will come to those who come to him with a broken and contrite heart, instead of him just consuming them in his wrath and in his sore displeasure, which is what they and we so richly deserve. I know I always seem to come on heavy about sin, but I think that's the only way we'll we'll appreciate that um, the seriousness of the cross. How serious it was time in history when the Lord Jesus Christ was stretched out on a piece of wood, a wooden cross, nailed to it, bearing away sin. A a horrible time, horrible episode of history for very horrible people. 
Returning to God speaks of having a change of mind. Return unto me and I will return unto you. It's a change of mind like the prodigal son in one of the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. The son demanded his share of the inheritance even though his father was still alive. Couldn't even wait for his father to die. So he demanded his share of the inheritance and he took a journey to a far country and wasted all his inheritance on riotous living. But then something happened. Jesus said that the prodigal came to himself. In other words, he had a change of mind. So much so that he said, I will arise and go to my father and say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. So it wasn't just sorrow, was it? It was a godly sorrow because he was going to say to his father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. There was a godly sorrow that works repentance unto salvation there. He returned to his father, not even seeking to be reinstated as a son. So he wasn't just being crafty there, going, realising, well, I've got myself in a real mess. I better go grovelling back to dad and then he'll reinstate me and I'll have all the, all the fine things of life again. Not at all. But he went back as a hired servant, or at least he thought that he'd be, uh, you know, that his father might take him back as a servant. That's an example of a godly sorrow that works repentance unto salvation. Another example of true repentance is King David, who in Psalm 51 said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me throughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Um, I can go on and on. I can remember just recently. Yeah, it was, um, Les, wasn't it? One of the, just uh, one of the recent Sunday evenings, we looked at the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple and the, the, all that the tax collector could do was beat his chest and couldn't even look up to heaven. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, or God, be propitious. He was, and, and he, he went home justified. True repentance there. However, as can be seen in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 7, instead of casting themselves upon the mercy of God with broken and contrite hearts, the Jews said, wherein shall we return? In other words, they didn't even realise they'd done anything wrong. There wasn't even a hint of repentance It would seem that being called upon to return to the Lord was an affront to them. As far as they were concerned, they hadn't even departed from the Lord. At that point, their sins were laid bare in verse 8. We'll look at verse 8. 
the Lord speaking here and he says, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. First of all, they were asked by God, Will a man rob God? The original Hebrew words can equally be translated, will a man rob or defraud his gods? It can be plural, his gods. As such, the Jews were being challenged to look at the other nations, the heathen nations. Even they were faithful to their worthless idols. They didn't defraud them. They continued to worship the false gods that they were accustomed to. You can see something very similar in Jeremiah chapter 2, where, where Jeremiah is speaking, or the Lord, I can't remember now, but it's about the, about the Jews forsaking, um, the fountain of living water and, and digging for themselves broken cisterns that cannot hold any water and all the surrounding nations looking on in disbelief. How can the, how can they be so unfaithful to their God? You know, these pagan nations that worship idols, they're, they're more faithful to their idols than the Jews were to the one true living God. <clears throat> so in stark contrast and to their utter shame, Israel was guilty of defrauding the only true God. As Calvin said, it's as if the Lord was saying, go round the world and you shall not find among the nations so unbridled a liberty as prevails among you. For they render obedience to their gods with a small g and sacrilege is abominable to them. But ye defraud me. Am I inferior to idols or is my state worse than theirs? Israel, having already asked, wherein shall we turn, now had the audacity and the impudence to ask, wherein have we robbed thee? The answer was short and to the point. They had robbed God in their tithes and offerings. With regard to tithing, about 1300 years before Malachi's time, Way back to when the Jewish patriarchs first made their home in Egypt. Joseph, who was the son of who? The patriarch Jacob. He was, all, he was the most powerful person in Egypt under Pharaoh. And we're told in Genesis chapter 47 and verse 26 that Joseph made it a law or an ordinance. It's the same word in Hebrew an ordinance over the land of Egypt that Pharaoh should should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. In other words, Joseph enacted a law that required everyone apart from the priests to give not one tithe or one-tenth, but two tithes, a fifth of their crops to Pharaoh. Sounds quite familiar actually. So the Jews during the time, well the Israel, when it was just the 12 tribes of Israel, they had to give a fifth, one fifth, two tenths 
of their crops to the king of the land, Pharaoh. And when you think about how things are today, the minimum income tax on our island, as far as I know, is one tithe of a person's income. And in the UK, it is a minimum of two tithes, a fifth. The same as it was about three and a half thousand years ago in Egypt. Yet Israel was guilty of robbing or defrauding the Lord of the tithes that were due to him. Not that God needs anything from anyone. However, one of the consequences of their selfish greed was that the Levites, who were set apart for religious duties, and also those who were appointed to be singers in the temple, they were being deprived of an income. Consequently, and we read this in Nehemiah earlier on, consequently they were obliged to go and earn a living outside the temple in their land in agriculture. No doubt the Jews withheld their tithes at least partly because they were not very pleased with their high priest Eliashab. I've got it, Eliashib. Even so, the result was that the house of God was neglected, all because tithes were not being paid by the Jews. Perhaps you can see that the charge against the Jews, that they were robbing God in tithes and with their evil offerings, speaks volumes about the attitude of their ungrateful hearts and also their irreverence for the Lord of hosts who had been to them a master and a father. The very fact that they withheld their tithes and their offerings, they really didn't care. Even one of the Jewish scholars of old, Aben Ezra, pointed out that the Jews gave grudgingly and not cheerfully and with an evil intention not to show their gratitude to God and their acknowledgement of him as their Lord, from whom they had their all, but in order to merit at his hands. So when the Jews did actually give something, when they did give tithes or offerings, they did it with um, ulterior motives. They were after something from God. And that can so easily be how things are in the church, with people giving grudgingly and giving as if they were making an investment in order to receive favour from God. But that clearly wasn't the, ta- the case with the Jews in the time of Malachi, because they weren't even giving in the first place. With them it was more a case of being faithless and having no regard for the Lord. Applying all of this to Christians, Christians are not governed by any divine ordinances that require them to tithe to the Lord. If you are a Christian, it's entirely between you and the Lord Jesus Christ how much you give towards the church and for the furtherance of the gospel so that I don't have to go into agriculture and earn a living. That's just one example. The situation as it now is, under the terms of the new covenant of which the Lord Jesus Christ is mediator, is that tithing is no longer a requirement. As one of the commentators has pointed out, I can't remember who it was, I think it might have been Lenski. 
One of the outstanding facts is that the Gospels mention tithing only three times in three condemnations of the Pharisees, all three being scarring in their severity. The other references are found in Hebrews chapter 7 verses 5 through to 9 and are merely historical. Although all the apostles were originally Jews, reared in tithing, with not one word did any of them intimate that in the new covenant the Christians might find tithing a helpful method of making their contributions to the work of the church. For all you Christians who insist that tithing is an ordinance of God, an authoritative order of God, I would like to show you how things were in the early church. For example, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 through to 35, it is written, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. That sounds like a lot more than a tithe was being given by those early Christians. Perhaps you should be doing what the early church did instead of just giving a tithe. Also, there was a man by the name of Zacchaeus to whom the Lord Jesus Christ said, This day is salvation come to this house. And Zacchaeus pledged to give half of his goods to the poor. Perhaps you should do the same. Give half of your goods to the poor. Anyone in here who insists that we should tithe. Whatever you give should not be given with a reluctant heart. Neither should it be given in order to gain favour with God. And neither should it be done legalistically. Because this is what they used to do in the Old Testament. Rather it should be given cheerfully. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul said, Let each one give as he proposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. I I think about that verse and what... Does that mean that God will love you if you give cheerfully? What comes first? You giving cheerfully and then God loving you or God loving you and you're someone who gives cheerfully. I don't believe that God is sitting in on his throne and when you, you give cheerfully, God loves you for it. Basically, if you are a born again Christian, you don't count your pennies. Again, it's between you and God, but you give and whatever it is you do give, you do so cheerfully. Never mind what anyone else is doing, but you give cheerfully and God loves you because you're his child. 
God's love for you is not dependent upon your giving, whether it's a tithe or two tithes or all your property or all your land. However, as people who have been delivered from destruction and have received all spiritual blessings in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians are not, or at least ought not not to be, penny pinchers. It doesn't make sense that you would be a penny pincher when you've got treasures in heaven. You know, I, I think, how far do I go with this? Because I hate talking about this whole business of giving. But it, I, I hope you can understand what I'm saying and perhaps re- read between the lines and realise that it, it's between you and God, but at the same time, you, you remember that your treasures are in heaven and I'll say no more on that. Let's um, read verses 9 through to 12. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts, and all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. We can see that these in these verses that cursings and blessings come from God. Cursings and blessings. In verse 9, God declared to Israel, ye are cursed with a curse on account of them robbing or defrauding him. Even so, it can be seen in verse 10 that Israel would again receive blessings from the Lord if they stopped robbing him. And they brought their tithes in their entirety to the temple treasury. I think that's encouraging that because you, when you read this about the, the Jews then, they, they were a terrible bunch. And they, the, 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 the way they answered God, when God laid charges at them, and they were so arrogant, but there was still, God, as, as, as we've already seen, return to me and I will return to you. And this is how God is, merciful. That's got to be a message for someone in here, perhaps. It can be seen in verse 12 that obedience to God's ordinances would result, would result in Israel once again receiving earthly and temporal blessings. And I want to emphasize that earthly and temporal blessings that they were receiving here. We, we needn't imagine for one moment that all of those Jews were, were born again and um, new creatures and regenerate. They weren't. They were God's people and we can learn a lot from Israel of old and apply it to us as a, a, as a church and as the people of God, New Testament people of God, regenerate, born again, new, Christ, new creatures in Christ. And we're being told here that if the Jews of old returned to God, then there would once again be temporal blessings for them. 
Whereas, of course, you as a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, as I said this morning, you have all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. And as I've said just a few minutes ago, you have treasures in heaven. Very different, isn't it? But still we can learn from this. We can we can learn a lot from this. So Israel could once again receive earthly and temporal blessings that would be acknowledged by the heathen nations. The heathen nations would see it. They would see that the, that the, the Jews were blessed of God. More generally, <clears throat> the curse of God is upon everyone. And that is because everyone has robbed God in the sense that None of us has given unto God the glory due unto his name. It wasn't just the Jews of old. It's us now. Us. We all rob God. We all defraud God. We don't give him the glory due unto his name. We have all broken God's ordinances. We have all sinned and the wages of sin is death. And yet we see those lovely words there. Return unto me and I will return unto you. The good news is that as it is written in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. All of us, we have all sinned, we all come short of the glory of God. Don't imagine that where it says Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, that us refers to everybody. We can see this being a collective thing with the Jews of old. As as a nation, they had gone away from God, they had uh, held back their tithes and offerings and so on, defrauded God, and as a nation they were cursed. And God was calling on that nation to turn once again to him. Return to him and he would return to them. But what is the situation for us now? To repent. We are all under the curse of God. And those who repent. Has re- we have riches. Christ have redeemed us from the curse of the law. And that us doesn't mean everybody. It's not everyone. Either you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus at the cross and you have received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus or else you are still under the curse of God's law and the wrath of God is upon you. So there be some in here, maybe, whatever, who have are blessed of God and others who are under the curse of God. Even in this one small room. You are one of us. Us. Christ have redeemed us from the curse of the law. You are one of the us if you believe that Jesus has fulfilled all the law's demands on your behalf. In his life and then in his death, when he paid the debt of sin at the cross, according to God's command. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, 
It is written, or Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus has fulfilled the law. He has fulfilled everything that was said about him in the Old Testament. And someone who is blessed of God believes that it was done for him. It's very personal. We've been looking at the nation of uh, the the Jews as as, um, a people tonight, but this becomes personal when we apply it to us individually. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he has redeemed you when he took upon himself the curse of God's law. Are you one of us who are trusting in Jesus, washed in his blood and clothed in his righteousness. Amen.